0: As we come now this morning, um, we are turning to a familiar passage uh, in Luke chapter two. We're coming to our third sermon that flows out of that um, the acronym. Um, uh, this kind of that flows out of the, the Greek word for the fish, the ichthus, and those Greek letters that form uh, the word ichthus, which in Greek is just fish. Um, were used by the early church to communicate uh, some of the critical titles um, concerning Jesus. And so if you you take those uh, first letters, it creates this acronym, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so over the first two weeks, we've looked at uh, the first theme, specifically looking at the importance of the title Christ. Uh, And then last week was... uh, 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 Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so this morning, our theme is looking at this all-important title of Savior um, and what this uh, means for us in the coming of Christ. Our text this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 2. It's part of the familiar story uh, right out of uh, uh, Luke's... um, his narrative concerning the birth of Jesus. And so at this time, I invite you to stand and just to hear it again. And and on Christmas Eve, we'll be reading through the entire section um, of this. So this is just a piece of it. And it's good for us to gather together and to rehearse the important stories, these great redemptive events um, that have led us to where we are within the new covenant in which we stand. And so we're reading from Luke chapter 2. I'm reading 8 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. O God, our true strength is in you and from you. According to your mercy, grant that your Holy Spirit may be poured out. Grant that our thoughts and that my words might be ordered for the sake of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to be traveling around to a few different passages and And part of what we are meant to see at this time of the year is that God is a promise-keeping God. And he keeps his promises when it looks like it is impossible for the promise to be fulfilled. And this encourages us as we think and we wonder to ourselves, is it really true (laughs) that God is with us? Is it, you know, we look at our circumstances and, and our circumstances tell us something else. We say, is it really true that Christ will, in fact, one day return? Is it really true that we ourselves will be resurrected after death, entering into the eternal kingdom of God, in the presence of, of, of God? And part of what the reason why we affirm those promises to be true is we look at the promises that have already been made. In some cases, hundreds and thousands of years in advance, and that have already been fulfilled against all odds in the coming of Jesus, in the coming of the Messiah. Well, our passage here begins with shepherds tending their flocks by night. Joseph and Mary have traveled from their hometown of Nazareth, located in the north region of Galilee, to the small town of Bethlehem in the south total trip would have been roughly 70 miles. They had to travel to Bethlehem, their ancestral home of David, to be officially registered for a census. And because, of course, the inn, you know, this public place of lodging, whatever they had, the inn is full by the time they arrive. Um, Well, they have to find residence in some kind of uh, a a barn-like structure um, uh, in which... um, uh, Mary will, in fact, uh, birth Jesus. Bethlehem is, of course, itself of great importance to the story. We're told in the Old Testament book of Micah, in chapter 5, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient Days. Well, that Old Testament uh, promise was viewed by the Jewish scholars of, of Jesus' day as pointing to the coming of this messianic king figure. And what this passage told them is that, that there was a specific location, only one location out of all the cities and towns and nations of the world, the Messiah who would bring salvation is going to come from this little backwater town called Bethlehem that we know of as Bethlehem. The shepherds tending their flocks at night also have an important role. They themselves appear to be this fulfillment of a promise from Jeremiah 33. The prophet Jeremiah writing during the time when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed And when the survivors of Israel have been scattered as exiles throughout the Babylonian empire, Jeremiah um, prophesies that when the Messianic, the Davidic descendant, uh, this Davidic king uh, arrives, there will be shepherds back in and around Jerusalem, tending their flocks as a sign that God has restored Israel back to their homeland, and as a precondition for the coming of Jesus. And I say around Jerusalem, throughout Judea, because Bethlehem is very close to uh, Jerusalem, roughly six miles just to the south of Jerusalem. These are the actual words from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities there shall again be habitations of shepherds rusting their flocks, that is Jerusalem and the entire Judean region has been wiped out by the Babylonians. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities um, uh, of, the, of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the place about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. That is they'll come under the hand of their shepherds. Behold, then he goes on to say, the very next verse, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. That's messianic language that's being used here. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. There's I think what the, the angels are declaring, this is God's way of saying, you remember that promise I made back in Jeremiah when you all were scattered throughout the empire? I brought you back to the land. Don't forget, I fulfilled that promise. And on the very night when the, the Savior is being born, there are shepherds tending their flocks just outside of Bethlehem. And probably Jewish scholars believe that these sheep that are being shepherded are the sheep that would have been used for um, sacrifices uh, at the temple, that these would have been sacrificial lambs uh, that were being tended to at night. Angels also figure prominently in the birth of Christ. Gabriel has appeared to both Mary and Joseph announcing the birth of Jesus. And now an unnamed angel followed by a multitude of angels shows up. Now, we think, you know, because we focus on, you know, the miraculous stories of the Bible, we think there are angels like every day showing up in Bible history. But it's not true. Angels are actually quite rare occurrences. And often when an angel shows up, they show up with an announcement of some great redemptive event. Well, that is true here. Fear not, the angel says in verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of a great, not just, he doesn't just notice that, not just of something that's going to make you happy, but of a mega, a great mega joy that will be not just for you, for all people, all the people. Why? What's this message? What, What is this pronouncement for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord now these angels uh that are showing up first there's one angel who is enough apparently you know there's this glory that is shining in the presence of one angel And immediately, the angel has to to calm these shepherds down. You know, they're looking up and they're already, you can feel the anxiety welling up in these shepherds. You know, what's going on? And and the first words are, don't be afraid. It's okay. (laughs) You can calm down. Fear not. Because I'm actually here to deliver this great message. And that angel needed to say that. Because following that announcement, what we're told is there's this Host this multitude of angels. We think of like a little choir showing up. Kind of, you know, you've got the lead singer and the little choir behind them. No, think thousands. That's what multitude means. Thousands of angels showing up. And they're singing this this song of praise, of glory to God in the highest. So the angel had to prepare them. Don't be afraid, because if you are afraid, you're really going to, you know, you might have a heart attack when the, the rest of us show up. The angels are there to signal that an epic moment in redemptive history is at hand. This is a redemptive event on the level of the Exodus, where Moses led the Israelites out of slavery. After you know being in, in Egypt for close to 400 years, finally, God fulfills his original promise to Abraham and leads them to the promised land. Or think about you know, the promises uh, of a king, and finally they come to pass as, as David brings unity to the kingdom, and then the glorious um, uh, time, this kind of golden period in the, in the time of Solomon, uh, where there's great unity and, and uh, wealth, and ultimately the temple is built at that time. Those are these great redemptive events. But unlike those events, the message that's being announced here is meant to be understood as something that is both uh, greater in degree in terms of the significance of the blessings that are about to arrive and in scope. That is, it's not just about the Jewish people now. This is going to be a message that is going to be a blessing for the world. For Jew and Gentile alike. This announcement is signaling a redemptive event that once it occurs in its fullness, beginning with the birth and then concluding with the ministry and the death and resurrection and exaltation and actually concluding on Pentecost, you know, these great redemptive events. Once these events come, we're not going to be talking about the Exodus so much that they cause these previous events to pale in comparison. At the head and heart of this announcement are three titles given to the child born in Bethlehem that night. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. This is That's fulfillment of promise. A Savior who is Christ, that is Messiah, the Anointed One. The Lord, who in this context is best taken as a reference to the divine nature of the child. To you is born a Savior. Christ the Lord. This is the at the heart of the good news that is arriving in the in the coming of Jesus. And for our time, I, I do want to spend um, uh, just time focusing on this title of Savior. For unto you is born a Savior. The in Greek that the word is soter. There are critical themes that are operating in the background of this title. Uh, This is not only a title given to Jesus, um, but it is also explicitly the name, it's the meaning of his name. This is what Jesus means. In Hebrew, this would have been Yeshua or Joshua, as we would say in English, a common name. But we're told in Matthew 21 the significance of his his given name, Jesus. Jesus. In Matthew one twenty one, we read that this is Gabriel speaking. She will bear a son, and you shall call, and speaking to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This idea of savior is built right into his name, and this is a name that Joseph is required. He doesn't get it. You know, I guess this makes it. You know how hard it is to name children. But at least, you know, this would be great. Oh, thank you. I wish you would have given me names like this. But but he doesn't have a choice. Jesus is going to be, he's going to be the one who brings salvation, who saves his people. And specifically, we're even told the nature of that salvation, it is a salvation uh, from their sins. So there are themes operating in the background of this title. One thing uh, that's that's hanging there is this comparison that Doctor Luke, the author of Luke, appears to be making between the, the birth of this infant and this humble backwater town laid, you know, in swaddling cloths in a manger. A comparison between this one and the one he introduces this narrative with. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar. Augustus, that all the world should be registered. I think partly what Luke is doing is he's making this comparison slash contrast between two kings. And on the one hand, because Caesar Augustus was given this, he was given a title, um, Savior of the World. This was one of the glorious titles. And so if you're a Gentile reading this, you might feel like, ooh, this feels a little treasonous. To see what Luke is doing here, that now Luke, uh, well, and really it's the angels applying this title that was for, you know, uniquely for the emperor and now being applied to this, this coming infant, this descendant of David, um, the, this title, savior. The world is looking often to the most powerful ruler at the, um, for their salvation. But in truth, what God is telling us that one far greater than Caesar, the most powerful person in the world at that time, one greater than the most powerful rulers, even combined of our time has arrived. That's the message. That's part of the message of the gospel that is being given to us. This is the one we need to look for salvation And then, probably more important, are the uses of this term Savior in the Old Testament. The ancient deliverers of Israel, the judges, could be referred to as a Savior. Indeed, in the announcement of the angel of the Lord, so note you have an angel of the Lord appearing to the wife of Manoah, who is also the mother of Samson. You read this in Judges 13:5. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from, uh, from the hand of the Philistines. You see this language. And by the way, that language is, is also showing us, as um, it, it's, it's very close to the language uh, applied to Christ in, in the gospel narratives, that to understand that Samson, in certain respects, is this type. Now, a far inferior type, to be sure. And Samson, of course, had many flaws. But he is a type of the coming Messiah. This, this warrior who is almost undefeatable, okay? Until his hair is shorn uh, from his head. But he's this one who operates anointed in the power of the Spirit, which is what we're told of both Samson and of Jesus. And Samson's also, you know, he fits well into the, the Greek idea of the warrior because he's not just this, this uh, military warrior in battle, but he's also someone who is sharp with the use of language and with words. And, and so Samson, like his greater, you know, uh, a, a descendant um, uh, of Israel um, that comes later, David, both warriors, both good with words. Samson telling his riddles and his proverbs that seem, you know, unsolvable. David, of course, the, the great warrior and also the, the, the sweet singer, the sweet psalmist of Israel. These show us that Christ himself will be mighty in power, fighting a greater enemy than the Philistines and also so powerful and mighty in word. These are types of the kind of savior we are to expect. But perhaps the most important theme regarding this title of savior flowing out of the Old Testament is that as you go further on in the Old Testament, there is this theme that Yahweh himself, that God alone will be Israel's savior. This is repeated in multiple places, but one such place is in Isaiah, chapter 43. And here, I'm just going to read verses 10 uh, through 13. So in Isaiah 43, this is um, Yahweh speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And and to understand the, the background of this passage, Isaiah is projecting more than a century ahead into the future when he sees that the, the the Judah will be taken into exile by the Babylonians. So when you hit Isaiah forty and going uh, forward. You, that the background, the context of those chapters is of Israel in exile. Israel under the tyranny of the Babylonians. Israel having their homeland and probably have lost many loved ones. Um, their homeland, the temple, their capital city of Jerusalem, devastated. Okay? So this is a dark time in the life of Israel. Something similar to the time they must have experienced Way back in Egypt, when they were forced into this harsh slavery by the pharaoh you know, of uh, Egypt. Pharaoh, a kind of antichrist figure. So in Isaiah 43, in the context of the Babylonian exile, we, we read this. God, Yahweh, calls you know, his people together, you know, metaphorically, as witnesses. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. That is, I am God. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is, and here's our key word, besides me, there is no Savior. I declared... And saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. And also henceforth, I am he. And there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. And who can turn it back? (coughs) What Isaiah and the Lord is saying here is, Israel, you are in a situation of complete collapse. You're under a tyranny from which there is no human solution. There's no human that can defeat the Babylonian empire. There's no human that can bring you back to your homeland and restore it. But you're my witnesses. And as he goes on, he's going to say, what I'm going to do in bringing you out of Babylon, which means I'm going to defeat the Babylonians, and I am going to restore you, and you're going to be my witnesses that I, the Lord, have done this. Apart from me, there is no savior, is what Yahweh is telling the people. There are no gods. All the idols he's saying here and Isaiah is saying over and over are not, not they're, they're empty. They're false gods. There's no truth to them. I, the Lord, alone can solve this problem from which... There is no other solution. Your only hope is to trust me, but when I do this, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to see what I do, and then my expectation is you're going to declare it as kind of in a court of law. You're going to declare what I have done. Now, this is standing behind the naming of Jesus as a Savior, the soter. Because the Jewish people, this would have sound you know, to the Gentiles, it sounds a little treasonous because of how this was applied to the Caesar. But to the Jewish people, this might even sound blasphemous because this should have rightly been a title at this point that belongs to Yahweh alone. But this is the title that the angels give to the infant Jesus. And it tells us that of the plight of the Israelites And their problem, and see, they misunderstand this, of course. They think, oh, you know, just like Babylon, you know, the Messiah will save us from the Romans. But as you go on into the New Testament, you realize no, 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 the plight is much worse. This is a captivity that goes all the way back to Genesis, where they have come under the dominion of the evil one who has dominion over the kingdoms of the world. Someone far greater than the Babylonians, far greater than Pharaoh, greater than Goliath. This is Satan himself who needs to be defeated. And the problem and what gives Satan power over us is because we've, we've rebelled against our creator. We've kind of signed these papers away that no longer will we belong to God. And we belong to this tyrant because of our sins, because of our guilt. And the ultimate result of our sin and guilt is death. It is separation from God. Separation from our bodies, from this world, and ultimately from God. And this is a plight. This is a tyranny and a captivity that we are helpless to solve, okay, on our own. So part of the message of Christmas, you know, on the way here between my house and the church, there's this billboard that says something like, we must, we must save us. We must save us. And I, and I think I couldn't quite get it. I think it has something to do with, like, medicine. Um, but... I was like, that is not the message of Christmas, (laughs) You know, don't be confused. We can't save us. Only one can save us. It is Yahweh. It is Christ, the Lord, the one who was the word, and the word uh, was with God, and the word was God. This is the one we must look to for our salvation. And so this is a Savior who brings a liberty that transcends earthly subjugation from a captivity that is far worse than this political tyranny. At the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he appears in his hometown of Nazareth at a synagogue. And he takes the position of a rabbi. He takes a scroll that is a scroll from uh, Isaiah, in fact. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4. Verse 16 and following, we read there, and he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed by the Spirit. That is, this is the language of Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This is the anointed one being spoken of. To do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant. And then he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what we celebrate. The coming of a Savior. The coming of one who proclaims good news um, for the poor. And when we think of these terms, poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, I think the emphasis here, and as we go through, the center, the the priority here is is the spiritual poverty that we're in. It's the spiritual captivity to Satan and to sin. It's, It's the spiritual oppression, but consistent with those spiritual realities, as we also see in the ministry of Jesus, he's ministering to the literal poor. He's also he's healing those who are literally blind. He is freeing those who are literally oppressed and possessed by the demonic powers of darkness, who are literally in chain to the evil one. Okay. So all of these things are very consistent with spiritual truths, I think, are at the heart of this, of course. But if those things are spiritually true, then it also becomes true that poverty in general is not a good thing. Slavery is not a good thing. Paul later says, if you as a slave have the, the ability to be redeemed, take it because this is consistent with who we are, even though at the heart of that is our spiritual realities. The salvation that's being described here, is again a salvation that we are impossible to solve. But this is how the Savior always operates. He loves to do the impossible. (laughs) He loves to do what looks like it's just, it can't happen. He is the Savior who saves us from the greatest evil into the greatest good. Let me say that again. He saves us from the greatest evil and to the greatest good. And he does his best work when it looks like his promises cannot possibly be fulfilled. That's what the the Old Testament has been showing us all along. Okay? I mean, think about the promise he gives to Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to give you a son. And through him, you're going to have like so many descendants, you can't count them. Like the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. And they're gonna, you're going to have kings, and you're going to possess this land. And then, you know, ultimately, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through your descendants. Now, that promise comes to Abraham and, and Sarah, Sarai at the time. When, when Abram is 75 and she's 65. Now, you think, oh, wow, that's going to be tough to do, right? Except, except that the promise doesn't come for another 25 years. And if you're Abraham and Sarah, you're like, you're going out of your mind. Like, what about these promises? And so what God so often does is he makes it so like it's impossible from an earthly standpoint for these promises to be fulfilled so that he can do his best work. It's what what the angel says to Mary. Mary says to the angel, how are these promises that I'm going to conceive this child when I am a virgin, I am unmarried? And the response of the angel is... Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Even the coming of the Christ child is, is kind of, it's about how God does his best work when circumstances say it's not possible. And so at Christmas, we're reminded that God will keep his promises for his people. He will deliver them. And in Isaiah says if he delivers them, nobody can deliver them out of God's hand. And he won't do it because you're so good. And he won't do it with your help. He's not going to do it with your goodness and your achievements. He is going to save you. He's going to do the impossible by his mighty power. And then once he does, nothing can steal you out of his hand. And he will do this uh, for all of his people who bear his name. Let me just conclude uh, with a passage I'm just going to read it because it encourages, it reminds us who the Savior is. And this is a passage that's sometimes read at Christmas, so this is uh, uh, not unusual. But this is from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. This is about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, let's pray. Eternal God, you are the author and perfecter of our life. You are the chief end of our pilgrimage. Continue to guide us by your word and by your spirit in the midst of trials and temptations, so that we would not wander from your way, which is the way of the Savior. As we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ, enable us to rejoice and praise you with all our hearts for the sake of the name of Jesus, to whom be the glory. Amen.